0: Welcome over to my favorite time of the week. Uh, delighted to have David hartshaw on. David's had a huge, fascinating life and it continues to be very interesting. Um, the reason David's on it, he was recommended by Guy Waits who's a round-the-world skipper who in turn was recommended by General James Bashel. and um, Guy recommended him because he's a fellow round-the-world skipper ki- clipper, clipper skipper and uh, but also fascinating other things. He's been a platoon commander with 10 para uh, in three company Um, and and I always admire people who in their spired time are are able to be officers in the army Um, and also he was a superintendent in the metropolitan police and particularly um, in charge of public order as the chief of staff there and the summer of unrest in 2009 which got pretty hellish he was right in the thick of things when Croydon was literally on fire so welcome David great to have you on board
1: Pleasure. Delighted to be here.
0: Yeah. David, we're always, as we, you and Ben and I had a really good chat about some of the life experiences you had. So, so let's go straight to those. And really, the, the journey that took you into leadership, you were mentioning particularly about your father doing an awful lot of things later in life. And you started to do some phenomenal things like, you know, um, being a skipper and around the world uh, racing three times. Tell us a bit about your life journey dad particularly and and other people who've influenced you
1: so my my journey started really in terms of the fact that um i ended up in the police more by accident and design uh and intended to do it for two years and um and then go a bit traveling unfortunately i sort of ended up doing a further 28 years before i started to do my gap year and 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 traveling um and within that i think the whole role of a police officer generally is is about leadership whether you're a police constable or not, it's about leading people. Um, but in the background, and I got to know my father a lot better in my in my sort of late teens, early 20s, and we started doing a lot of climbing and that sort of thing together. Um, and he got made redundant at the age of 54. Um, and at the time for him, it seemed to be quite a devastating um, moment. But actually, looking back, it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to him. Um, and he just turned all his um, all his you know his hobbies and his passions into what, what he lived for, um, and that certainly influenced myself on, on my journey. You know, if you look at people say, how on earth have you ended to make the, the the gap for you know, the, the step from being a police officer into a round the world uh, race skipper? Well, actually, it's pretty similar. It's about dealing with people. It's about putting teams together. It's about dynamic problem solving, um, and it's about empowering people to um, to help solve problems themselves. and And there's a massive, massive overlap. And the, the more, the longer I am a, a clipper skipper, the more parallels I see within within, within my former calling.
0: Yeah, and, and in those three different um, callings that you've had, you know, being a parachute resident officer and ten para being a, a, a skipper of around the world where you are on your own with your crew and they all look to you, what do we do now? Uh, and then also being in the police when, you know, Croydon was on fire. We'll hear more about that later. Um, what have you found perhaps the differences in leadership style? Because sometimes the army get a bit complacent and they look at the police and they go, well, you haven't got an officer corps. You know, you, you don't train up your officers. They do various courses, but but you know anybody can go on up, whereas... know the army is different that way what are the pros and cons of let's say you know the army with like special forces and airborne versus you know the met police, and then maybe separately the, the sailing
1: well i think you know when i certainly joined the police and things have slightly moved on now that everybody started off as a police constable and had to do two years um on on the beat learning the skills of the trade um and then People are then sometimes selected for potentially you know, rapid rates through through the ranks where the military take people where they can see potential for, from, a, from an early stage and train the map to, to be a leader. I think um, the advantage is, from my perspective, and I, and I actually did this with, with the Clipper as well, is the fact that because I'd been a PC, in fact, actually, before I became a sergeant, it was about 12 years. I had 12 years of service, and then I went rapidly from sergeant to superintendent. But I think what happened then is I knew the basic job. I knew what it was about. I, I understood the organisation, um, and I, I had worked with some great leaders. I'd worked with some pretty unimpressive ones. Um, so I had a feel for what worked and what didn't. Um, and I felt I was then mature enough to... to um, to take on that role and lead people within within the police. It so happened that at that time I was actually going through TenPara and was going doing my commissioning course with, with TenPara as well. So this sort of came hand in hand. But then when I came on to be a Clipper skipper, one of the things um I was mm-hmm. had a long conversation with a guy called Mark Light, who's now the race director, um, when they said yeah, you know, went for a a trial to become a training first mate with, with Clipper. And they said, are you thinking about becoming a race skipper? So I said, "Yep, I am definitely um, thinking about doing that. I said, but before I do it, I need to know more about it. Um, And I negotiated with with, uh, Mark to actually do a leg as a crew member on the um, 15, 16 race. Um, And that gave me such an insight um, to help me when I started putting my crew together for the 17, 18 race. Just to write, like, write like some of the pitfalls that you fall into, and and to have a feel for what it's like to be, you know, the bowman in the middle of the uh, the North Pacific in in, in hurricane winds.
0: Did, did you come across Piers Did you in your travels? That's one of the skip. Piers,
1: like, yes, yeah,
0: yeah, because he he was a, a relation cousin of my ex wife, and I remember seeing him heading out with his crew. Did you ever serve alongside him or on his crew?
1: No, 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 but I, I did. I knew no of him, yeah.
0: Yeah. But it does take certain qualities to be a race skipper. I mean, it, it, you really are on your own and huge responsibilities on you, the, the lives of, uh, of your crew. And, and of course, you, you had a horrendous experience, which I, I think it's important to share uh, about Sarah, which was such a such an impact on your crew and your life.
1: Yeah, so on the um, uh, fifteen sixteen race, I um, went to Chengdu. We were going from Chendao to uh, Seattle, and it was always agreed that I wouldn't, I could be put onto any boats depending on where they needed the skill set before we left. So it was only about thirty hours before um, before we left Chengdu that I got allocated onto a boat called uh, Ikor call Col and strangely enough, out of all the crew on on Ikor Coal, I hadn't done any training for them, so I was fairly new. To them, as they were new to me, and um, then uh, unfortunately, just as we were about a thousand miles past Japan, heading into uh, the North Pacific, um, we had a uh, horrific storm. Came out of nowhere, really, Um, and we we were expecting it, but it came in a lot quicker than than we were anticipating. And um, I was off watch and uh, Darren the skipper asked uh, Sarah, Sarah Young to come down and um, get myself and another guy called Dave as well to to go and help them on deck with some, you know, they needed some additional uh, skill and and muscle on deck and um, as I was following Sarah at the companionway we were hit by a huge wave and um, just like being under a waterfall and then As the water cleared the deck, I heard someone, it was in the middle of the night as well, it was about 11 o'clock at night, and uh, pitch black, about 60 knots of breeze. And um, I heard someone call out, uh, man overboard. And the initial reaction to that was one of, that is a really sick joke to come out with in in these conditions. And then I realized that it wasn't actually um, a a joke. It was actually, for um, for real, and actually, it was Sarah who was literally a metre in front of me uh, on the companionway step had been washed overboard, and so, she
0: had no line attached to
1: her. She just no, no, she she wasn't. Um, she was washed out of the companionway, which is quite a common place to be washed out of actually on, on a boat. A lot of people think people get washed over on a foredeck, but the most common place on the boat actually is from the companionway with that grey matter of being are you on deck or are you below deck that that transition period. Um, yeah, So it was the middle of the night, after about 90 minutes, we eventually got back to her um, and she was still alive when we got back to her. However, by the time we managed to um, get her back on board, unfortunately, she had passed away. So um, so then we had about 19 days to go until um, to, till we get to Seattle um, and you could imagine, you know, we we're on our own, um, yeah, the morale was absolutely horrific. Um, there were a number of crew that um, you know we couldn't actually even get them on deck for about seven days. Um, you know, and, and understandably, you know, a lot of people were, were were terrified. But we definitely had to look after ourselves at that point because there was no one else coming to to, to help. And the other the other big issue that we had is that a lot of people wanted to stop racing um, and um, just you know make our way to, to Seattle. And I can remember having a big discussion with some of the crew saying, no, we've got to keep racing because the rest of the fleet are our backup. And if we let that gap get bigger and bigger and bigger, and God forbid something else was to happen, we are completely on our own. Whereas when you do uh, match fleet racing around the world, that fleet is a support, a self-help group, and we'll go and support people should it be required. Um, and it took a lot of people to, um, to, you know, some people to work that out. It was quite difficult for it.
0: Yeah, I I cannot imagine just how hell it was for you and the others um, to lose something like that. And and you were talking about freeze fight fight, how the human psychology, what people would go through. Uh, what did you see others going through, and how did you cope with the fear and the anxiety and all that you were coping with? And how has it affected you since?
1: So I think, I mean, for the first time ever, that was, um, you know, from my previous experience with the police and with the military, you're talking about two groups of, of, of individuals, you know, that generally, if something needs to happen, people those people in the military and the police are stepping forward whilst a lot of people are stepping back to, to come behind the protection of the police and the military. What, what did surprise me initially was um, that was the first time That I hadn't been working in that environment. And actually, there was quite a lot of people that did freeze. And that was quite a big wake up call to me. Um, Initially, I was quite surprised with that. And then the longer I thought about it, when I did have time to reflect, is actually realizing then that people, you know, a lot of people hadn't seen a dead body before, you know, and then to actually have someone who's that. dead body, who's someone who's part of the crew, a really, really major part of the crew. Yeah, you know, I'd done CPR on um, four people previously, but Sarah was the only person that I actually knew. And that whole thing was very, 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 very different. Um, I've got to say, I got to Seattle and thought to myself, I am never, ever, ever going to cross an ocean again as long as I live, because I didn't think at that moment in time that the, the, the sacrifice, you know, that, that had happened um, was worth it. But then again, having reflected on that, you know, clearly <laughs> I did come on because I, I went on to be around a the world race skipper. Um, but the big thing and, that, that for me,
0: back on the horse, you talk about Lorraine, your now wife, yeah, got to meet you in Seattle, um, knew that you had to go through the, the grieving and, the, and the, the huge impact of what had happened to you and your colleagues. How did you get back on your horse? Because we've all had moments where we've had a well, one, but I can speak personally, had really awful experiences and, and you just don't want to do it ever again. How did you mentally get through that?
1: So um, that, that was quite an interesting one. I actually, um, so we, I got back to the UK, I think it was in the, in May. And then in June, I was down to skipper a, a boat, um, a training boat for what's called level one for people we're going to be doing the 1718 race. So the day before, I had a little bit of a wobble before I went down and I phoned the chief instructor out and I said, Do you know what, Ben? Um, I'm quite happy to run the course, um, but I don't think I should be shown down as the skipper um for it because I'm not sure how I'm going to react, especially when we do man overboard draws and we put a life-size mannequin in to, to, to deal with it. So I said, I think it would be better if someone else is shown down as the skipper. And I'll do all the paperwork and all that, and, all, and I'll go and deal with it. Because if I do have a wobble or I do have a um, a sort of outburst, it's not coming from the skipper; it's coming from the first mate. So that you know, so sort of a bit of credibility for the company and myself. So, in any case, I did it. It was an amazing course. Um, I'd said to Paul, who ended up skippering, skippering the boat that week, I said, "That's it. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to be doing this." And about halfway through the week, he said, "No, Dave. I think you'll end up doing it." I did all the debriefs on the last day, and quite a few of the um, of the students um, who said, "Oh, you are going to apply to become a skipper, are they? Because Because um, and then they said something which really, you know, was an incredibly powerful thing for me. Was they said, "Because if you are, we want to be on your crew. We want to come with you." And uh, that was so. Say, so I can remember driving. Um, back from, from Gosport, up to, um, back up to Ripley in Surrey, and thinking, mm, how am I going to brace this now with, with the rain? And then um, over a glass of wine that evening, on the Friday evening, I said, I probably am going to have to put an application in. And she goes, yeah, you always were. You just needed to find that way yourself. So uh, yeah. So, wow. so a bit of outward, outward management from some of my crew that then became like the Greening crew, yeah.
0: So that for me is, really gets me and that real inspiration from your crew, even though they weren't a crew who you work with very much, who called you to find your vocation and, and follow you because followership is just as important as leadership. Yeah, You've got to have people who are willing to follow you. Many yeah. people get into leadership positions and people follow them only out of curiosity into what they'll blunder and mess up next. But these guys said, if we're gonna go out there and our lives are at risk, we want you to lead us. And, and how could you resist that, really?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it was a very, very powerful moment in my life I think, you know, one thing to do take out of um, the whole thing about losing Sarah is that um, she certainly, that incident made a massive impact on me. It changed my outlook as a skipper and how I run a boat. I run a boat, you know, I used to run a boat safely before, I would probably say I run it 10 times more safely now. Um, And also it just really, really reinforced to to, to me two two major points that leaders build culture um, and they set the standard. And if you let a standard go, then it's very, very difficult to regain and recover. So if you start letting some of the safety issues go to suddenly then bring it back when it's needed, that's too late. You know, it needs to be the big foundation step of uh, of an ocean race boat.
0: Yeah. And, and being a, a skipper in that kind of environment, you know, one of your heroes you mentioned was Shackleton, who who has done some legendary, very fine leadership. But yet, there's stories about people who were exploring the Northwest Passage and things like that. You know, disappeared. You know, even Hudson. You know, yeah. he's mutinied on him. He never came back. Um, so it, it is the rawest, I think, the rawest form. Of, I've done some, some ocean sailing, but never of your standard, with, um, uh, uh, in Scotland with, uh, not Jay Blythe, um, I'll think of his name, um, John Ridgway, yeah. uh, who was a, a real iconic guy, rode across the Atlantic with Quaid Blythe, things like this. And and th- there's nowhere to go. You know, you you could be a parish division officer on the ground somewhere, or a police officer, you can go back home. Here, yeah. you're describing, you know, 19 days that you had to go on with someone who died, who was still on board the boat. Uh, and I think it's it's some of the toughest leadership positions you'll be in. And James Nashall, who's a very fine uh, officer in the parish resident himself, and we did a P coming together, he said, you know, out at sea, you know, when he made a mistake, gosh, he learned from it.
1: Yeah.
0: And what's your lesson about you Know you're clear in the list of empowering teams in extreme environments, three different settings. What what wisdom and advice would you pass to people about empowering your team, even in just normal business working environments? You know, what to do, what not to do. What what have you learned the hard way and what, what works?
1: Well, I think that the one the one thing I that I've learned about um how resourceful people are and and the one thing that you must do as a leader is not assume that you have the answer for everything, but you have the ability to get the answer from your team. Um, and that I think to me is, 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 is the big one. You know, um, I've worked with yeah, some amazing guys um, on the Clipper race where we've had things break. And um, I'm looking at it thinking, I have no idea how we're going to repair this. I um, made a generator game I and mean, how on earth are we going to get this this, this back together? And then you always find someone within the team you know who has got that experiences and lo and behold, they use a D cell battery to make a starter motor for the generator and we're back up and running again. so it's it's about identifying the skills, you know and and whenever I take a crew on um, with with the clipper is I'm not really interested in their sailing, because I know what their sailing ability is generally, because they've all done a course. Some of them have got previous experience. But what I'm really interested in is what their hobbies are, what their interests outside their workplace are, because those are the skills that we're going to need to get, because the clipper boat is is effectively a floating village, but we're self-sufficient. So it's, it's all the hidden skills and interests that people have that fascinate me that will get you out of trouble and will give you an empowered team.
0: Yeah, amazing. And imagine you met the young 18-year-old David Hartshaw. What what bit of wisdom would you pass on? Knowing what you've learned over all these years in the Met Police and with the powers and uh, as, a, as a skipper, what would you pass on to the young self there? Hey, look, this is a good bit of advice, which others listening would go, you know, maybe they're early on in their career. That sounds like a wise bit of advice to, to follow though.
1: I think I've probably found out the hard way that those people who have got the loudest voice and the loudest opinions don't necessarily generally have necessarily have the best ideas. And it's some people who are sitting on the periphery of the group, the people who are, you can see that they want to say something, but necessarily don't have the confidence to do it. Some of those people are going to be the key to get you out of all sorts of of trouble. Um, And it's just about, you know, Probably to answer in a roundabout thing, I I probably didn't realise how powerful emotional intelligence is as a leader and the key to getting to know your, your, your team and your individuals. So you know what the skill sets are, you know what motivates them, you know what their concerns are. And if you can draw on all of those, then you will have a team where it doesn't matter how Someone's thought process might feel insignificant. They'll be happy to put that thought process because they're not going to get beaten down with it. You know, they might that might be the answer.
0: Yeah, great, great advice. Just just a, a little bit more before I hand over to Ben. Uh, in in your life stories, one of the others which I saw the the video of was uh, you were way out at sea off Portugal, way in the Atlantic, when a horrendous accident happened and essentially almost ripped your thumb off. Just tell us about that and how you how you coped with that and how people rallied to 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 act as leaders in a difficult situation.
1: So that that was um, on the seventeen eighteen race. It was day seven. We had um, come out of Liverpool. We had made a conscious decision as a team that we weren't going to follow the rest of the fleet and that we were going to go further west. Uh, we were heading down to Uruguay. So lots of people dived straight down to the Bay of Biscay and we uh, we went further west, way out beyond the continental shelf and out past Ireland because we, we could see a big weather system coming in. And we thought if we could get into that weather system before the rest of the fleet, we would make up the, the, the distance and we would have a, a good run. And lo and behold, yeah, we, we got into it. And at that point, we were we were 12th. We The wind kicked in. We were able to get the um, the a cells up, the asymmetric spinnakers up, and and away we went. And um, because it was relatively early on in the race, people's helming um, was not particularly you know confident at that time. We were still developing as as a team, and our skill set was doing. So I was doing quite a lot of helming on that day, and I knew um, that we were about to have a, 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 a watch changeover, and I thought. Right, there's two guys coming on on the next watch that could possibly helm this boat. So we hang on. In any case, they gave it a go and decided no, it wasn't for them. It was, it was in the middle of the night by then. As things always are, mm-hmm. and that it was a bit too much. We said, fine, we'll get the kite down, and we then realised that we'd lost the uh, the line to douse the kite in the water. The dousing is, is bringing it in. So in the process of uh, recovering that line. I ended up with the uh, line in my hand and holding the guard wire. And the boat's doing about 18 knots. we have got about 35 knots of breeze. So a lot of power taking place. And at that point, the the, the spinnaker collapsed and then reinflated. And the spinnaker is about the size of a a tennis court. So you can imagine the size of the sail. And um, as that happened, uh, as I was holding the guard wire, it pulled my uh, (laughs) hand. Through the guard wire, just like a uh, cheese wire, and then, um, and I can remember looking down and um, thinking, "Ah, oh, I've got six digits. I've got four fingers, something in between, and the thumb off to one side." And uh, yeah, and I knew, I knew the moment that happened, um, that that was, you know, that was my circumnavigation over. I knew that, um, which is, you know, massively disappointing, having put three years of effort to get into that position in the first place, but. One of my crew, amazingly enough, had been a hand surgeon, uh, Miles Berry, and um, he managed to give me some amazing first aid. Um, so much so that initially he talked about um, potential amputation, but later on it was you know, identified that there was still blood circulating in it. And um, the Portuguese um, Air Force came and picked me out in the sea in a helicopter and uh, got me back. And that was a very strange thing to do because I then had to... Um, step off the boat that I was skippering with a, with a, an amateur crew. And um, I didn't realize how quickly the boat disappeared very, very quickly. And suddenly I was in the middle of the ocean, leaving them to find their way to Portugal whilst I was hoisted back in a helicopter. And that was a, wow. yeah, a big moment.
0: Wow. Well, David, look, thank you. Some amazing stories, and you've got many more to tell us. But um, Ben, I think it's time for, for you to take over for, for your turn to host and skipper the boat.
2: Crazy, stuff, so fascinating stuff, David, and, and su- such um, interesting different parts of, uh, of your life. And we've had um, a <clears throat> number of people make some comments and, and, um, and some likes. Um, yeah. Hannah Thompson, um, who, who says, Nice to see the yeah. greenings pick on the wall yeah. behind you. So Han- Hannah
1: was on board when I lost my thumb. And um, so they, oh, they, really? they went into okay. Portugal and um, they put a new skipper on board. And uh, they then raced down to, um, down to Uruguay uh, on a time lapse. And uh, the, the most amazing thing was is they, uh, they came first. So they got first into Uruguay. And, um, and then after that, um, there was obviously happened if there's a time lapse on, in those racing. Some people say, well, they must have had lucky like, and things like that. And then, um, yeah, from, from there, they uh, went from Uruguay um, to Cape Town and they won that race as well. So uh, yeah, and they were a very, very amazing group of people actually wow. in Greenwich, I've got to say. Yeah.
2: Wow. <laughs> well, th- thanks for the comment, Hannah, and, and, and well done. It sounds like they, they did an amazing job. Um, we, we've also had a, a comment from uh, Don McIntyre and I think it's quite um, relevant to uh, what you've been talking about here. So um, in your lowest, darkest times, how do you pick yourself up Dust off, so you can lead and inspire others um, through through hard times. I think
1: the the, the biggest thing is, you know, if you go back to the whole the, the Sarah one, which you know is probably pretty pretty extreme, is that you've got to be able to um, mm. take take that emotion and, and bottle it up and put it to one side to get on with the task that's in hand and to, to look after to to look after the people that you're then responsible for. Um, but with a massive caveat that you can't put that emotion to one side and forget about it. When you get that opportunity, then you need to offload and and, 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 and talk that through with someone else. You can't just put it in your pocket and forget about it and think you're under control. You've got to know that, that you need to deal with that, um, but you've got to find the right time to deal with it. Um, and it, it, it is a difficult one, I think there's, you know, if there's any crisis going on generally you can solve the problem of the crisis but whatever crisis happens you get a lot of white noise and you've actually got to go back to basics you've got to put that white noise to one side and you've got to be quite clinical in a way by then putting things into compartments and saying right these are our priorities this is what we're going to deal with it but again going back to that those dark times again it's about then um, just creating a bit of space for yourself, and then trying to put things into perspective. And also, you know, um, any any leadership role—it's it's not—it's not, it's, it's an honor and a privilege to to be able to lead any group of people in, in any given circumstances. But with that comes responsibility, and that's you know that's where you earn your corn. You know, at that moment in time. Yeah.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, just sort of more on on that sort of that ability to, to to lead through crisis and change what what in your opinion makes a good in, inspiring leader
1: i think it was it was um i might get the quote wrong but it was uh, jfk that came out with it. leadership and learning are indispensable they're, they're massively interlinked and i think anyone who's an inspiring leader uh The learning comes in it from two ways. A, they're looking to learn and develop themselves, but more importantly, that they are looking to develop and um, give those that they're working with that opportunity to to learn. So I think, you know, a a good, inspiring leader is going to have a lot of uh, humility with them. They're going to be a good communicator. They're going to spend time being a tea drinker well, can be coffee but they're going to get to know their teams and they're going to get you know spend time with those individuals knowing what's going on in their private life knowing what's going on outside the work, as i was talking about earlier and then once you know what motivates people then you can then start pulling those skill sets together and also the other thing about is empowering them and a good inspirational leader will empower a team and then let them go off and do what they've asked them to do, as opposed to micromanage. Um, you see that time and time again, where people delegate, and then they just turn into a complete control freak, and they don't let the, the delegation take place. So, um, and I think that that thing about being an inspiration leader. Um, the, the the law of, of forensic science is that every contact leaves a trace and i think any inspiring leader will leave a trace i talked about i talked about my father earlier um, you know and he'd been a venture scout leader at his funeral there were 12 venture scouts you know that was over 56 years later that they were there yeah he'd obviously left a trace with those people he'd, he'd inspired them and i think to me that's that's a big part
2: yeah, yeah definitely and and that's something that's that, that's come up yeah. time and time again with the people we've we've interviewed is that ability to give people responsibility to put them in in, in those positions to make decisions and stretch their themselves so then when they are put into a diff, difficult position they can handle it and it yeah. seems to be a, a thread which seems to come quite often from from people with a military military background is it is that something that you picked up from from there or
1: i, I think it's quite quite possibly you know i, I don't know whether i can pin it 100 on that but the one thing that also that i've identified is you know going back to the ocean being on an ocean you know um certain race teams will have two or three helms you know per mm. watch so those people then are being constantly under a huge amount of pressure but what happens if one of those breaks an arm breaks a leg you know if you've got three helms you're down to two so it's about empowering people and bringing people on so you've got built-in resilience to your team you know, it's, it's really important i don't think people underestimate you know we, we you know, look at what the country's going through at the moment mm. or, or the world going through you know you need a lot of resilience in, in things like that and to build that resilience you've got to delegate and you've got to coach and you've got to bring people on
2: yeah Definitely. Um, and uh, Anthony Cope has, has asked a question which um, brings me on to my next question, <laughs> but uh, is looking at who has inspired you. Which leaders do you do you, have you found inspiring? Um, Anthony himself has uh, has put his her leadership heroes as Churchill and um, Jean Luc Picard of the, <laughs> of, um, uh, the uh, Enterprise. I, think, I believe, Star Trek. Right.
1: <laughs> okay. Um. I think yeah, as I said said earlier that yeah, um, Chapman had I uh, was I think he was quite a modern leader ahead of his time, as opposed to um, to now. I think um, this will probably surprise you a little bit. Willie John McBride from the Lions, seventy four Lions, um, inspired me as as <laughs> as a child. In fact, I even named my tortoise after him. But um, <laughs> I've worked. Um, I've worked with with a couple of people in in the police. Um, Cressida Dick, I'm absolutely delighted that she made the first uh, female commissioner. Um, On the morning after Croydon burnt down, I was at the management board meeting at the yard where it was uh, fraught is probably the most polite way of of putting it with um, Tim Godwin about to uh, go and see David Cameron at number 10 to explain what was happening what was not happening um and she was probably the calmest logicalest person in the room she's got great interpersonal skills um so she's definitely um inspired me uh chris allison who was one of the assistant commissioners in the met is now retired and then a guy who is um one of my borough commanders when i was at camden as, a, as an inspector a guy called tony brooks who won the police um, gallantry medal, but also the QPM. And, and he was a very, very unassuming individual, but oh my God, he was a powerful leader. He knew exactly what he wanted. Um, and he knew what his staff wanted, he knew what made them click and he had standards and he he was, yeah, very inspirational, looking back, yeah.
2: Amazing. Uh, we've got a comment from um, Charles uh, Ferguson who remembers the Thumb Knight well, <laughs> um, yeah. and uh, he, he's uh, also commented, But how do you deal with a person in a team who doesn't contribute, who brings others down, or destroys the culture you're you're building?
1: I think one of the things that I've learned o- over, uh, over 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 the life is um, sometimes you reward people, um, and you know you think that will motivate them. Someone's done something really well on a team. Um, But actually, one of the things I have found is that when you identify, and sometimes you don't actually know that that culture is taking place, but then when you do identify that it's taking place, that you deal with it. Uh, You you don't try and brush it under the carpet, and you try and you know whether that's done in a private meeting or whether you do it you know as a team. And quite often, um, if if it's brought to your attention and you've got a strong team. And you can have a team meeting or get someone to facilitate a team meeting. And actually, it can be done in open forum. And actually, that can be very, very powerful um, to, to, to get that so that people can unpick the, the whole issue. But the one thing you have to deal with it is once it's been identified is to deal with it and not yeah. walk away.
2: Yeah, I think probably now more than ever when when people are not in close proximity and and, and there's probably a lot of, situations which arise where things are misread I, I think you're right i think that that getting things dealt with quickly and uh and meeting them head on is um probably vital vital now how, how do you sort of see um uh leadership being being impacted by by covid
1: i think there's there's two two things that immediately strung out for, for me around covid is that a um A lot of business models or working practices are are being thrown up in the air. So there's going to be opportunities to actually look at different ways of doing things. You know, actually, is this the correct way? You know, what is the mission of this company? For example, you know, is it still valid? Because we have almost a new world order, but also, you know, some of the things that I've been talking about now, which I passionately believe in about getting to know staff, that's, you know. Potentially, a year ago, we might have all been sitting in the same room having this conversation, um, but now we're doing it, you know, spread across um, the United Kingdom. And it doesn't matter how much you deal with uh, on, on a Zoom meeting, you know, you, you don't pick up some of the inferences, you know. It's, 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 mm. it's a pretty a communication tool, but it's not as good as actually spending some time um, with, with people for, for a long period. And I think it will be very challenging for uh, leaders to... Um, to be, get to know the staff and also is to possibly identify that the, the, yeah, some of the, the, the App and Bright coming people it will be more difficult because you're not going to know them as well mm. over a period of time.
2: Yeah, it'd be really difficult to to picking up on, on the stuff you said earlier to, to get to know them, get to know the things which aren't obviously there at, at the forefront of their strengths. And I think also a really important one is to make sure everyone's heard um and and that's that's a really difficult thing i think now with with zoom meetings and it's really quite easy for people to just get into the background and be, be doing something else
1: and not get, be joining say earlier doesn't it about yeah. the person with loudest voice is not necessarily the person who's got the, the, the key to the problem yeah yeah
2: yeah exactly and it gives a different dynamic as well because you, you're on a zoom meeting you're on or, or, or whatever provider you're using it's almost like you're on on tv or, or performing in, in a little way something yeah. that um todd do it from our our interview last week said um everyone's got to realize they've almost got to turn their personalities up a little bit um for 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 the current world we're we're, yeah. we're living in and to be heard it's a it's a different different way of working i think so with them um, uh with with yourself we always sort of look at successful people like yourself, and, and you've been through different sort of chapters in your life and, and, and um, quite different experiences. Um, we look at the habits that have made you sort of su- successful over those um, over those um, experiences. So we ask a series of questions and questions which are a bit sort of um, quick fire looking around sort of healthy wealthy and wise um so um this also gives it an opportunity for other people to, to to chip in and make comments and ask questions as well so on the healthy front what have been your your sort of habits to keep you healthy both mentally and physically
1: so um i used to do quite a lot of running i've run the london marathon three times um and one of the things I haven't restarted in lockdown is is, is back running, and I, that would be good for keeping me healthy. But also, it's a great you know, it's a great time to get thought process to yourself and to, to think things through. And the loneliness of a long distance runner, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's good. And that I, I would be able to kill two birds with one stone with running and um, being able to have some time for, for myself. Yeah
2: yeah that's that sort a of bit of a alone time especially now in the the sort of experience of covid lockdown and and the creep of work into the rest rest of your life i think it's it's so important um yeah. at the moment uh quick comment from uh don mcintyre he he says um your hilly hero <laughs> willie john was a very impressive man which is good to good to hear that uh that there's other people out there who, who uh hold him in good, good regard um so Moving on to wealthy, is there any piece of advice, obviously at the moment there's lots of people who are struggling um, with um, with work, um, with money, uh, is there any piece of advice that you give about money or have been given that um, has been useful over the years?
1: I've got to say, I'm going to let you down on this one, there's nothing really that massively springs to mind. But the. Um the anyways is a very odd very odd uh, response is that my grandfather who ran a series of um garages and made money in his wealth through selling new cars the piece of advice he gave me was never buy a new car
2: <laughs> that's not a bad piece of advice depreciation as soon as they're off the off the uh, forecourt is yeah, is pretty yeah major isn't it yeah. um and then finally a piece of wisdom that you strive to live your life by
1: i think this goes back to uh definitely uh, goes back to, to my father um and i, I, mean, I can really equate with that is um there are graveyards full of indispensable people mm. um live you know for me that's um live life to, to the to the full um and and to take any opportunity that's given your way um to, to give it a go i i forget the name of the book but there was a book that was quite big in the um in the 80s early 90s which was um feel the fear and do it anyway i can't remember who who wrote that book um it was a fe- female but you know that feel, feel the fear and do it anyway combined with the you know that whole thing goes for the indispensable people you know that's that's the way to live life
2: yeah yeah and when <laughs> when did you sort of um Start living that sort of feeling the fear bit. When 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 did you, did you start pushing yourself in that way?
1: I think probably from my from my my twenties. I mean, it, it's 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 funny you talked about the parachute regiment and stuff. It was um, I went to join the TA and went to my local local unit and discovered when I arrived there that it was part of the parachute regiment, and I immediately uh, thought, "Oh my god, I'm not up for this." I went in and started speaking to someone and then before I knew it I got hooked and and, and was in it but that was a very much then you know I am probably or didn't think I had the skill set or, the, or the, the mental ability to do that but now I gave it a go and yeah I got there and got my commission as well so that was a double whammy so yeah take take any opportunity yeah
0: quick quick one it was Susan Jeffers feel the fear and do it anyway great book
1: right, Susan, yeah.
0: Susan Jeffers yeah
1: yeah
2: Fantastic. so we've got a couple of comments and um questions just to sort of add in here so um we may hear some background noise as my daughters arrived home so uh, there may be some some noise in the background try and ignore it um when in a team um egos are in the mix how do you keep true to your convictions and retain belief in your leadership skills
1: ah uh, this is that, that's a that's a great question and um On the last clipper race, um, we uh, inherited um, someone from another boat, which is quite an unusual thing to do because there were some big clashes of of, um, egos. And um, what I did then is I actually got all the crew in um, and we went and we revisited our values um, as a team. Um, and said, right, are they still valid? You know, is it? Do we need to to readjust them? Um, and also, what that did is it re-emphasized to um, some of the individuals who uh, egos were expanding that actually that the values of the team were probably more important than their opinions. Um, and that was quite a powerful meeting, but it definitely worked. Yeah,
2: great. Also, we've got a question from um, Anthony. Okay, Anthony. So, how do you deal with the weakest link? Do you strengthen it, or is it the weakest link? Goodbye. I suppose um, not. Got much point um, choice if you've <laughs> if you're at sea.
1: No, I mean I think the, the first the first thing with that is that you know to me it's, it's if they are the weakest link then that's your biggest challenge um, and that's where you're going to concentrate effort and um, because there's you know, it doesn't. Uh, they might temporarily be a weak link but they're not necessarily going to be a weak link all the time and i will go back to the night that we um that we lost sarah which was pretty horrific um and then we lost a lot of crew that didn't want to go on board etc and uh there was probably about four of us sailing this boat and um a couple of the what would have been seen as the weaker links of the crew turned around and go right guys we're not going to be able to help you sail this through the storm." but What we're going to do is we're going to look after you, and it was very humbling because you'd come off deck and they would be putting a mug of hot tea in your hand and then helping you into your sleeping bag, and then a few hours later waking you up and say, hey, We need you back on deck now, etc. And they then became, you know, a strong member. So there is, there is a component, you know, everyone is a component in the team. There's no weak links, in my opinion, only weak leaders.
2: Yeah, that's a really great point, and I, I think it sounds like you you like to get, get to know the whole person and not just, um, the, the sort of one facet that someone might, might be, um, be good at. So it's, it's good to sort of understand, um, all the different facets of, of, of their abilities and talents, um, to really take advantage of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, another nice uh, question from Richard Norfolk. Great advice for inspiring leadership, but as a leader of a team, do you have any advice on managing or challenging upwards? Perhaps not as a skipper on a boat, but perhaps one of your other roles.
1: I, I think th- you definitely have an um, obligation if you are a leader and you're not, you know, you're not at the top of the pyramid. You definitely have to have um, um, that ability to, to stand what you believe in um we, we talked about um before we came on air about um the night that Croydon burnt, burnt down um and had in case of that night with uh high and the commission of Metropolitan police and uh, it was quite a heated debate um but for me what he was asking was wrong it was the wrong thing to do at that time and um i i refused to do it that did have an impact on my career no question about that but good news is um at least um and i am still shaving ben at the moment so i can look at myself in the mirror and um <laughs> i'll, I'll hold my own on that one so, yeah. it's you, you have an you also also have a, a huge obligation for the team that you are leading to uh to manage upwards as well if you know if you as a team something is wrong okay you might not get the final say but you have you have a um a corporate or you have a a obligation to represent your team yeah
2: yeah and i think there's a real sort of healthy healthy balance in that in i think in that sort of leader leader and team relationship where uh, a team can challenge upwards and 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 it makes for a better leader because you get um, honest feedback you get all the information that you should be getting and um without it I think massive mistakes are are, are, are made yeah. um it's been fantastic uh, uh interview so far really interesting david and, and um really appreciate all the comments and, and and questions that have come in um just we're we're sort of coming into our last sort of um five minutes so we're going to start sort of wrapping up something i i i, I I'd like to sort of ask you is, is around how you think people or, or your tips on leading through crisis and challenge. Because I think that um, we've gone through a, a, a year of lots of people understanding that leading in crisis and, and, and challenge is, is is a very different beast. Um, it'd be great to hear, hear any tips that you've got to, um, for people for doing that.
1: I, I think, you know, one of, one of the most obvious, you know, um, one is that you don't want to be learning the the steps to to the dance when the crisis arrives, you know, when the band the band strikes out. So it's about having preparation um be beforehand and having a series of what ifs or contingency plans. I mean, for example, one of the things we regularly do with all the watches whilst we're at sea, they will be sitting there and saying, right, what would happen if the main sheet broke now? What would happen if the um, the, the shrouds supporting the mast gave way what would our initial actions be um so you've always got to have right, you know, assume that things aren't going to go well so you, you need to put that into place and I, as I said earlier I think one of the biggest things that you need to do in the initial crisis you know, when it first starts is you've got to block out the white noise you've got to turn around and say right what are we about what can we achieve what can we influence? and set maybe three priorities and focus on those. And then when you get a better feel for what's happening, you can then expand on then that. But you've got to really narrow it back down to um, to, to fundamental basics and not overstretch yourself. Um, and mm. the other thing as well is, you know, a lot of crisis management is um, I was um, in the special operations room on um, the, 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 when we had the, the, the bombing attacks it, um, on the tubes, etc. In, in in London. And um, one of my bosses at the time turned around and came in, so this is when the initial assessments were coming back, turned around and he said to myself and two other guys, he said, right, you're going home now, right? In fact, we didn't go home, they put us into a hotel across the, 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 the road from New um, from, from Scotland Yard. He said, because we need resilience. I talked about resilience earlier. And he said, everyone's going to be burnt out in 10 hours. That's when we need you to come in and pick out the new mm. left off. So it's about, you know, watching your your staff, watching that you don't get burnt out and, and pacing yourself. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, there's been been lots of comments as, as we've sort of been going on. Um, Simon um, uh, Panth pounding has said this has been a great session what's your next leadership journey
1: well the race at the moment is um is uh on hold at the moment and it's not looking unlike now to start until next august so um my plan was that i wasn't supposed to be on this race that i was going to go and do the uh 21 22 race um now looks like i'm going to go and finish this race and then go back and do 22 23 and get my circumnavigation in one hit (laughs) uh, yeah that's 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 probably my next plan
2: that's the plan right (laughs) do you miss it terribly when you're not not um getting ready for a, a, a a sale or um a journey
1: no, no, I, I just, I find um, it's that the whole of lockdown has been quite strange for me. Just suddenly, we were, obviously, we were in um, the Philippines when the race got called, and we were right in the thick of it. We were just about to leave to go across the North Pacific. And uh, no, suddenly, so i had gone from really intense working to absolute standstill nothing, um, uh, apart from decorating, which I think, in the way, we not a project for me now. But um, I think I would say, no, I'm looking looking forward to getting back and working with teams again, yeah. yeah. Well, if,
0: yeah. I, if I could come in briefly and let and Ben finish off in a moment, but uh, I've really, as you've seen from the questions and the comments, I've really enjoyed your humility, uh, your wisdom, your experience. Uh, you're a phenomenal, inspiring leader and it's lovely to see the lessons you've learned and also the battle scars that you've had which we've learned from 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 you sharing that. So, David, thank you from from me and Ben.
2: Yeah, it's been 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 fantastic. And uh, just a quick comment from um, Richard Norfolk, just saying um, the the answer he gave earlier, great great um, uh, answer, shows depths of character and integrity, standing up for it to you um, and your team believe in, demonstrating your obligation to represent your team. Yeah, really appreciate it. And and from that, what what, what would you like from? Your your life, your legacy to be, David.
1: I think, um, yeah, especially the work around Clipper is the fact that um, that, I, that I've helped people um, achieve some of the most challenging aims in their life, and have given them their tools to, uh, to to deal to deal with that, and maybe the mindset that the fact that they can go on um, and actually set themselves challenging, and they, they give them the self belief that they can achieve it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, definitely,
2: yeah. Final question before we go. Have you got a book recommendation for us?
1: Well, I've got one, actually, um, and it is leadership-based, and I read it going through the uh, the Southern Ocean um, on, on the last race, and um, it's uh, Open Side by Sam Warburton, um, and it's the story of um, him becoming the Lions captain and obviously the captain for, for Welsh rugby but it's a really, really good insight into uh, the self-sacrifice and, um, you know, his passion for, for, for developing people as well. And um, very humble guy, very humble guy, and uh, definitely worth a read
2: Fantastic. David, that has been fantastic and, and such, a, such a lovely um, sort of finish to, to, to the interview.
0: David, thank you very much
2: indeed.
1: Thank you very much for having me.